Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 28. Today, I want to start by thanking each one of you, all of our listeners. This could not be possible and would not continue without you guys. So thank you so much for listening, for tuning in. And also, I really want to thank the people that have been sharing the podcast, letting others know about it. I want to thank the people that have been giving us reviews in the different podcasting apps. That means the world to us. And I also really, really want to thank the, all the people that have taken the time to message me with their feedback, their thoughts, what they found valuable. That's really, really helpful and very valuable. So thank you so much. I've started a community a page on both LinkedIn and Facebook. And the idea is that there we can get the listeners together to have conversations about the episodes, what you learned, what you liked, what you didn't like, and also uh, talk about your problems and the challenges that you're facing at work. And there will be other people that can help you through those. So I want to start building those communities. If you are not on the groups yet, I'll post the the links uh, with this episode so you can join and get involved in the conversation there. In today's episode, we speak to Jennifer Penke. Jennifer started as a particle physicist before getting into data science. Among her many accomplishments, she was the first chief data scientist at Atlassian. She's based in Silicon Valley and she's worked in obviously multiple companies and has excellent experience. Today, she is the VP of machine learning at Figure 8, where they're doing extremely interesting work. During the episode, we speak about how to see the results of your work sooner and faster, the importance of choosing your manager, building data science teams from scratch, how to hit the balance between pleasing customers and the product intuition intuition that you need to develop to make cutting-edge progress. We talk about how to drive and create a data-driven culture, also the differences between having a technical manager and a non-technical manager, and she tells us what having a great data culture in in an organization, what that really means. It's a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer Penke. How are you doing? Hi there. So great to have you in the show. I am so excited. We've already been having a great chat, so I'm so keen to learn more about you and to get your thoughts on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. It's my absolute pleasure, Simon. I'm hoping that people get a lot out of this conversation. I think uh, we're talking about very important topics today, so uh, this is useful for people. Definitely, definitely. There's um, there's so much gold that we can get from you, so it's great. And tell me first, how did you get where you are? What's your professional journey so far? So, you know, like I actually like, or at least when I started my career, I used to like to think of me as being like an outlier, like I'm special or whatever, but I'm actually a particle physicist and I wanted to believe that I was really unique. And so truth is you actually have lots of people in data science that actually come from a similar background. I think applied scientists and applied mathematicians do like really make great scientists. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, so this is how I, it all started. So I basically finished my PhD at a time where the recession started. So it wasn't super encouraging to go into an actual research kind of thing. So I was kind of disappointed for me because that was my long life dream to actually become a particle physicist. And so uh, I have absolutely no regrets to be where I am. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, that was a long journey from there. 
And how did you decide to make the change from particle physicist to data science out in the corporate world? I would say like it came kind of naturally. So I think like back to when I was uh, still doing physics, I actually like gave it a harder try compared to other people. I eventually like went to a postdoc because I was really, really passionate about my topic. I was actually doing like something called CP violation, which is a very specific, like I would say like the closest you could do in um, data science is like anomaly detection kind of thing. I really wanted to give it a try. And then eventually like you had lots of physicists going into finance back then. And so when I realized like uh, the projects I was working on we're not going to go uh, really go get a, a lot of funding really quickly. I'm kind of an impatient person. I was not seeing myself in an environment where you would have to wait like for five years before anything uh, gets pushed out or you get a, a paper or anything. So I eventually went into finance. And uh, I really felt like finance was one of these cases, like uh, applications where a lot has been done already. And I'm, I'm more of a kind of person who likes to try new things. So eventually I went to a more traditional like data science track afterwards. Remember that was back to the time where data science that, that didn't actually like really carry that it existed, but very few people were attracted by the field because that was before like big data, big data technology. So uh, eventually I went into finance first because I didn't really have a choice if I wanted to have data. That makes sense. I totally understand because this is about eight years ago for you. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, nine years actually. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, back then, you know, like I used to say that I was a, an analytics professional, right? Not a data scientist. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't, that wasn't even around then. What was the type of work that you were doing in finance early on? algorithmic trading at very high frequencies and so you would do everything you would imagine like basically uh, prep, preparing data working on data pipelines maybe a little bit more of data engineering or what you would consider to be data engineering than really like building models and so my original calling was more into math so I mean uh, eventually it was more interesting for me to build models I did like everything that was related to like uh, differential equations and so forth and so on but I really felt like you were really trained to optimize for the margins and uh, again I really liked to try new things and this is the reason why I went to physics in the first place so uh, after finance my first actual data science job was in advertising and so I felt like there was tons of data and uh, not really any actual machine learning product lots of data lots of things to do and lots of opportunities of course and that's when you were a senior data scientist and you started to get some leadership experience and managerial mm -hmm. experience as well what did you learn during that time I would actually say that was a very interesting experience for me because I actually joined uh, UB back then. I had very interesting offers in larger companies, which I decided not to go for because there was someone I really admired that used to work at UB, John Wainwright, who was uh, basically a person who got into UB through the acquisition of a company. And so uh, John Wainwright is an outstanding engineer. He's done a lot of things for the industry. And so he, especially he was an entrepreneur. And I wanted to work for that person. But I by the time I joined the company, he was gone. I was eventually left to like basically like the only data scientist in a company that was trying to make it through data science at the time and absolutely no actual experience in industry setting for data science. And so I basically was left to try to guide the company into hiring the right people and uh, getting the right things to be done and the right products. Not a lot of people around to actually understand how to build a machine learning product or monetize on uh, data. And so I eventually got to hire an entire team. And so uh, I became a manager against my own will because I did not really want to do that or specifically not as a first step. And so uh, that's how I gained a lot of experience more on the, I would say on the strategy side of things rather than like modeling side of things back then. But that was a surprise for me that I showed up on the first day on work and where is my boss? And my boss was actually not there. That is a great experience though. It's kind of a blessing in disguise, even though I'm sure it was very tough. Yeah, 100%. Um, but what I love about your approach is that you were, and this is something that I always encourage people to do, is to pick a great manager. Absolutely. 100%. What do you think about that? Yes. 100%. So, I mean, that was completely the case back then because I had like much more, like I would say, prestigious companies, even though I really enjoyed the fact that it was a smaller company. So it was giving me more wiggle room to work on like a, maybe more scope of things, more different types of products, like a, compared to like a Google or Facebook where you're going to focus on a very specific feature. That's something I really appreciated. But I've always given uh, like a precedence over getting a good manager. I mean, like all people I've done, like I've made like good decisions 
emotions and bad decisions. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, sometimes I got lucky and sometimes not so much. So maybe that was one of the times where I didn't, like, I wasn't really lucky. Even though, as you said, like, that was kind of a, a blessing in disguise because I was really forced into, like, uh, making data strategy decisions for a company that did not, did not decide uh, or did not know what to do with data. And so that was, like, an extreme, extremely steep uh, learning curve for me. That's amazing. That is amazing, though. So how did you go about doing that? I'm going to say something really weird, like, right? I mean, so I think I've driven my entire career. And that was one, like, maybe the first, like, really clear case of this thing in particular. But I think we all know that data scientists or people in technology in general are very likely to get imposter syndrome. I have this weird thing on top of it. I like to make, like, a, a leaps of faith, essentially. When you combine both, you can really get amazing results. So I mean, like, uh, that was the very first time maybe in my career where I felt like, I don't think I can do this, but I'm going to say I can because I'm going to make it work somehow. And you make this leap of faith and then you're in this situation where like, uh-oh, I think I just said something I shouldn't have said. And then you're eventually in that situation where I'm going to have to make this work. Otherwise, everybody's going to make fun of me and you just have to find a solution. And so maybe I've been lucky, but every single time it worked out really nicely for me. That is amazing. That's amazing. That's actually quite courageous. You're backing yourself in terms of your ability to learn, to face up to the challenge, to execute and deliver. I think that is fantastic characteristics and, and professional traits. That's really good. I don't know if it's like, if it's courageous, I would say maybe it's more on the crazy side that it is courageous, but I, I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> no, definitely. So then you essentially, you felt a little bit of imposter syndrome and you were jumping into uncharted waters where you didn't know the depth of the challenge. And how did you work your way through it in terms of creating a data strategy and building this team for the first time? I would say it's uh, really important to make mistakes to be successful, right? I mean, so I think uh, that's one of the things we thought about. And so um, I think I did every, I made every single possible mistakes inimaginable, right? But at the same time, everybody's doing that because we're all discovering what data science is, how it works, yes. and so forth and so on. I would almost say like it's all about taking ownership and accepting like uh, responsibilities for your mistakes. So instead of like, no, no, it's not a mistake, it's going to work out or whatever, like take away whatever you can learn from that and move on and accepting that you were wrong and moving forward. Through all these mistakes, I actually found out that the most important thing in a company is its data culture. When I say data culture, it's like getting support from other teams. And this is really hard because this is something you don't necessarily control when you take a job. And every single difficulties I've seen, I, I can always tie that back to like, a, people are not really understanding what we're doing, why we need certain things, why return on investment for a machine learning or data science is not the same than it is for another engineering discipline. It's so critically important that everybody understands these differences. And it's not, not always very easy to engage the dialogue. For me, it's also like we were talking about like importance to have a great manager. For me, like the most important thing in a manager is like the ability of understanding this. And so it's always like, I think it's almost like uh, some jobs I've had, I've been the highest ranked data science professional in the company. And so it's all about convincing your boss, who's not necessarily as technical as you are, or maybe sometimes not technical at all, that they need to make some changes in the directions of the company or invest in technologies they wouldn't necessarily think of. On the other hand, sometimes you're reporting to someone who's also a data scientist but might have different views, especially if they are more senior. Maybe they don't necessarily believe that much in newer technologies. And then it's all about like, uh, how do I convince a technical person? They're not necessarily thinking about the problem the right way. That is so true. And how have you gone about first convincing your direct manager and then creating a data culture throughout the organization? How have you tackled that challenge in the past? It's a really a completely different game if you have a technical manager or a non-technical manager. So when you have non-technical manager, it's really all about basically providing a path to monetization. It's all about like, a, this is not just a dream. This is not just a research team. And so I've, I've been in situations where people, specifically non-technical people, have this view of a machine learning team being all about R&D. And we all know that good data science teams are not R&D teams. They're actually more on the engineering side. 
basically how do you show visibility on like yes it's a lot of money to put up for like uh, right now but like I can guarantee this one year from now two years from now and three years from now and then the difficulty is going to be that some companies don't have that uh, long-term visibility especially if they're smaller companies on the other hand if you have a technical manager right I mean it's all about like a probably easier to show like a specific model or something that's like a you can actually like put numbers on and they're gonna understand but then you're competing against someone who doesn't has the same level of technical competency or similar level of competency and they don't necessarily have the same vision and then this is where maybe your business sense becomes more you know like a how do I convince the entire organization that this vision is the right vision for the company and so I, I think like one really critical trait for a data science manager is to combine both technical abilities with like business sense and that's not necessarily something a lot of people have so true i could not agree more and it's definitely i think difficult to find difficult to develop the sense on both sides how did you go about developing business knowledge alongside the, the data science my thing is like uh, it's really good to have contact with your customers and so i'm really really lucky in my current company figure eight because we are really close to the customers because our customers are actually looking for us for generating their training data so we're really close to their business slash technical problems we kind of understand what they're trying to do and it's easier for us to address their problems and so in an enterprise setting it's extremely important to get closer to the customer because the customer is uh not necessarily you and me on a daily basis. At the same time, in my current company, the persona we're selling to is a data scientist, right? I mean, so it's making our role as data scientist a little bit more than what it would be in another company because we're also the typical customers from the other side, right? And so uh, this is really useful to build, I would say, business sense. At the same time, you know, like you never have to lose track of the fact that eventually all, everything you're building is supposed to make money, right? It's probably like my biggest challenge as a manager has been to, like, you really want to have really highly technical data scientists actually like uh, lots of people I've worked with are have PhDs and they're like people who like to publish papers and so forth and so on and so these are like uh, the people who are going to create the IP of your company you want to promote this at the same time you want to manage them in the way that they don't go completely like uh, off track and all they do is publishing papers all day right and so uh, it's really really hard to build a balance and sometimes the balance doesn't exist in one person if the balance doesn't exist in one person and exists on the team, the only person that can keep the balance is actually the manager because you have to offset both tendencies on your team. I don't necessarily see that as being a problem of not finding you. Like, I think a lot of companies are making these mistakes or try to find all these traits in one single person. So we've called that traditionally data scientist. I don't know if like uh, I actually have like machine learning scientists and machine learning engineers on my team because I think like uh, you're not going to get everything in one person and you probably need to add like the machine learning product manager on top of that and again like that's also a fairly rare like a skill set or personality or persona to find yeah but like uh, I eventually believe like the success of uh, I'm not gonna like reuse that to one specific trade but I think it's really really critical for the manager to figure out the right balance and to keep that balance not become like too much of one or the other that is so true. In my teams, I've felt the change in momentum sometimes from being very close to the business and then maybe a little bit too research and having to pull the other way. I love the fact that you said that it's a team effort. The team helps each other through that and navigating through that and the manager keeps the balance. Fantastic. And tell me, how do you pick what problems to tackle? So say when you go into a new company, start a new job, or you're preparing sort of the next plan or, or vision or ideas, how do you pick what will be the next piece of work that you and your team will tackle? It's probably going to be a very cheesy answer, but like I, I think there's a little bit of intuition in this as well, right? Because uh, typically, I think as engineers or whoever has a software engineering background would say like, uh, I'm going to build an MVP that fits a specific customer. I think the more bleeding edge you are, the less you can rely on the customer to tell you what to do, right? I mean, so it's again, it's all about the balance. And so I think as much as you want to please the customer so that you can provide short-term products or short-term capabilities so that they buy into your product, you also have to keep some kind of fraction of your resources and your mind share to actually think about what's coming next 
it's really difficult because you also have to compete with the interest of like all the teams with product management and necessarily having the same vision, especially if they are not technical and don't necessarily understand what you're trying to do. And same thing with management. And so I would say like the key here is to build credibility with your coworkers, with the different teams and with management, with really the entire company. You need to have monetization at play if you want to get there. At the same time, you need to get them to trust you. All you do is like publish papers, speak at conferences, generate ideas for like 10 years from now, they're not necessarily going to trust you. And it takes time, unfortunately, right? I mean, so that's one of the biggest problems you have is like you're actually competing against them because you're also competing against other companies that maybe are young startups that don't have the liability of having to manage an entire company or the belief of an entire company, the culture of an entire company. So the answer to your question is like, it's really, really tough. And it's like a management of like powers, beliefs, and basically you have to follow your, I believe this is the right thing to do, but I have to convince other people this is the right thing to do because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. And so you have to make sure you're not functioning in a vacuum, which is why a data culture within your company is so important. That's so true. And what I want to ask is, do you do any large scale efforts to drive data culture? This is probably like the most frequent question. So one of my key topics when I speak at conferences is basically like, how do you make... So I've worked for Atlassian before. I've managed like their search and smart team, which is like basically... And this is a team I built from scratch, like a cross-functional team of uh, basically in charge of building whatever intelligence goes in any of their products. It's a key topic for me to speak about like how to make a data science team or a machine learning team agile. Obviously, like this is what Atlassian does. So they force all their teams to be agile even if they're a pseudo research team, which I never claim to be, by the way. I love to speak about this topic over and over again. The single most important question or most common question I get is like, how do you build a data culture if you think this is so critical to getting there? Like you play with the culture of the company. The culture at Atlassian was essentially like a hackathons, opportunities to work cross-functionally. They have like programs to encourage people to change teams frequently. So if that's what the company has in terms of a culture, you can play with that and basically say like, hey, you can do a data driven hackathon or you can like encourage people to have lunch and learns or you can try to explain and try to see a little bit more about like what data science and machine learning is but unfortunately it takes a long time right because uh, you don't have hackathons every day so it's really important to take whatever opportunity you get from the culture of the company and this is the trick right this is where your ability to teach others talk to others comes at play in making your entire team functional and successful That's right. Interesting. And when you're doing the data hackathons internally and doing the presentations, how much do you do yourself versus your team, other people in the organization? What does that mix look like? You try to provide support as much as possible. So my thing is like, uh, there are several projects in the hackathon. I try to get as many of them as possible, data-driven. And of course, I cannot have my team involved with every single one of them. You try to be there as much as possible. Obviously, we have our own like our data-driven projects that we would drive for hackathons. And I've always made myself and my whole team like very accessible in terms of like uh, we have internal consultancy hours and uh, you know, like office hours where anyone can ask questions. The good news is uh, everybody wants to do machine learning and everybody wants to do data science, right? I mean, it's a cool topic. So it's not that hard to convince other people to drive this. The challenge though is that lots of people don't necessarily foresee the challenges. So for instance, like the most basic example is like uh, people don't really understand the concept of a confidence level so they think they have a working model or they think they have a model that works on a Jupyter notebook and it doesn't really work in production and so on. It's easy to get people to work on this. It's not necessarily easy to make people understand that whatever you created is not necessarily functional. And so it's by creating trust and having them come to you to ask questions that you're actually going to help them move to the next level. Interesting. And how much training or knowledge do you think people in the wider organization should have before jumping into applying machine learning to their problems? Eventually, I think you always need very technical people on your team anyway. So I'm not going to say I would never trust someone who doesn't have like an extensive math background, but like you need someone of that nature on your team. It's not necessarily the majority, but I would always say I 
trust, it's important to have very math-oriented and a very rigorous person cross-check everything to make sure you don't have a model that's like a working because you have a highly unbalanced training set and they're not necessarily going to think of these kind of problems, right? So eventually, I would always encourage that even if an engineering team is working on a data science project, I would I would make sure that they check with an actual like machine learning scientist. I'm going to call that machine learning scientist, not data scientist. At the same time, do I believe that people can get a sense that this is how things need to work or whatever? Yes, I think you can bring people fairly easily to the point that they realize there is a danger zone in a model. And so if you can train them to that level, then they will come to you to ask questions or ask you like, hey, I'm really not sure I'm doing this right. Can you please or can you or can someone on your team check this? Can they do that themselves easily? No, obviously no. And there's a reason why you have so many people with PhDs uh, still getting the lion's share in like a, most of like a, the most prestigious like machine learning teams. So true. And that's great. Essentially, teach people enough to know when it's getting dangerous for them. Absolutely. You need to teach people to know what they don't know, right? I mean, so once you get them there, I think you're good. That's really, really good. And tell me, how do you like to structure your teams? So I'm a very strong proponent of cross-functional teams. So I have actually like a, several times when I build teams, you get there and you're like, a, I'm going to hire someone who has a PhD in math. And then you realize that if I'm going to make that model functional, I actually need an engineer. I need someone who understands front-end, JavaScript, deployment technologies, Kubernetes, and so forth and so on. You will never find one person or one type of person for all of this. And that I think it's a major mistake on the market right now that we're still calling anyone a data scientist. I think like you, you have to become really clear what you're looking for because, you know, like, it's like calling someone an engineer, right? I mean, you have front-end engineers, you have back-end engineers, you have systems engineers and so forth and so on. Why would data science be any different? It's such a wide field with so many different technologies and growing technologies and increasing number of technologies that I don't think any single one person can fully understand. So for me, like structuring teams, like usually I like to have a ratio of like one scientist or person who builds a model for one engineer who person who can actually like deploy i would say i tend to be more and more like in favor of engineering so it's uh, like basically reducing the number of scientists because scientists tend to produce models fairly quickly and deploying the models actually they tend to take more time it actually depends on how mature your company is so if your company has been deploying like a hundreds of models before or tens of models before, they're going to understand how this works. So it makes sense to have more scientists than engineers, but usually it's not the case. And I think that at least, for example, with my personal opinion, what I see in Australia is that I think there's such a push for data scientists when the majority level of most com- most organization is that we need data engineers. We need people to be preparing the data, preparing the systems. And as you say, the scientists can make models quite quickly. How does that work on your side of the world? Is there more focus on data engineering is the data preparation within your team or a different team? And how does it work? And uh... Number one, I'm going to say that I don't think a lot of companies make that differentiation. I actually believe that there is a job as a data engineer and a job as a machine learning engineer, right? And so sometimes the skill set tends to overlap, but at the end of the day, I think there are somewhat different jobs. Number two, it depends what you call data engineering, right? I mean, so building pipelines, automation of transfer of data and so forth and so on. This is clearly something that I believe belongs into an engineering team, right? Now, if you call data engineering, like data processing, feature engineering, feature selection, and so forth and so on, I strongly believe this has to be done by the same person who builds the model. So this definitely belongs into a machine learning team or data science team. Definitely, definitely agree. And what is the focus that you see for most organizations, I guess, that you've, <laughs> that you've worked with or that you've been able to see through your career? I think the big problem we've seen, and I'm hoping or I want to trust this is becoming better, but lots of companies are getting into data science and machine learning, right? I mean, and, uh, especially those jumping the bandwagon, uh, it really feels like they are publishing positions without really understanding what's happening there. And so you have a lot of positions. And this is actually kind of, a, I'm going to say, like a terrifying for data scientists, right? I mean, like you have lots of positions out there that are not really what you're eventually going to do. And 
and uh, they're just like, hey, let's copy paste the cold job description from somewhere. And we don't really understand what that is. And then for the data scientist that that's actually going to join that specific company or sign that specific, uh, for that specific position, they are going to be like joining and maybe believing they're going to do like machine learning models or build machine learning models. And eventually they're going to be doing a uh, tableau dashboarding or these type of things. And so this is kind of dramatic, right? <laughs> so uh, I think it's critical also to inform companies, especially those who don't have or that don't have a, a machine learning strategy, what they're signing up for. Because if you hire that type of person, they're going to leave, right? And so this is a major cost. Like People are always like asking me, how do you hire talent? I'm going to say the bigger question is like to keep talent, right? And make sure they don't leave like six months from now. What are, I believe no company should post a job description before they fully understand what they want to do with it. It's really critical for us as data science leaders to inform the non-technical management layer what they're signing up for. I actually, the best way I know how to do that is actually to train the current MBA, like people who are currently finishing their MBAs. I absolutely love, I think it's critically important to talk to people who are like a MBA students right now and explain to them what this is about and the differentiation between machine learning, why you you don't necessarily always need a machine learning scientist to do everything. And so some of the solutions becoming commoditized and so forth and so on, because otherwise, when they become CEOs uh, of like the next generation of companies, they are going to make the same mistake again. That is a really interesting solution, because essentially I've seen companies that sometimes hire a mid-level junior data scientist first, and then they want to test the waters. And as you say, the company uh, doesn't know where they're going or what to do with them, and people do end up leaving. I've seen other people that start by hiring a leader that can come in, set a bit of strategy, and then build the team. But I hadn't thought about the option of teaching the MBA students to say, this is what you need to do to build an effective data strategy and data culture. Keep this in mind as you go through your career. I'm talking about like they're going to be CEOs someday, but they're going to join the workforce really short, like really quickly, right? I mean, so eventually when they join the workforce, I'd rather have these people do the job of like building a data culture and convincing the decision makers, right? It's probably like there is probably no stronger force in the universe of like a young MBA student, like going their first job and actually like uh, convincing their boss or their boss's boss that this is the right thing to do. And so uh, like, uh, yeah, I mean, if you can influence this pool of people, I think you're going to get there just around the corner. No, really, I'm serious. I'm really serious right now. I think it's really important to like uh, to convince like, uh, you know, like uh, these people so that you have a step into the door, like basically like convincing like uh, non-technical people, this is the right thing to do right? and how to build the right strategy. Oh, yes. No, I love it. I love that idea. It's fantastic. Tell me, what do you think about the other side of the coin? So you were saying teach business people about data strategy and then have them convince a company and eventually get to CEO not having this knowledge. What do you think about the data scientist, the technical person learning the business and then going up and becoming a CEO? So here's like, I love it. I think it's critically important. Now I'm going to tell you what my problem is, right? I mean, so yeah. uh, whoever is going to teach business or business development to a data science team has to be a current business development person or MBA person who doesn't necessarily understand what's at stake, right? I mean, so I think like one very dangerous thing in the industry right now is like, I know tons of really good product managers and development people and they're really strong at what they do but they don't necessarily understand the ai market or the machine learning market and so if they don't understand that how do you want them to teach to someone else right i mean so i think we have to see that from people who understand the technology first right i mean it's almost like a chicken and egg problem but i think like eventually like you're more likely to have i would say scored machine learning uh, managers or data science managers that understand what did not work and and they understand what does not sell so that they understand what mistakes not not to do. And so eventually, like, uh, I believe there is a stronger methodology to go in that direction, right? Because, like, uh, I think that you have really brilliant people in business that don't necessarily or cannot be successful because they don't understand the market or the AI market. I actually don't think anyone really does because it's brand new, right? I mean, so I'm not going to claim that I have a perfect visibility on the market. I'm just like, I have a visibility on what doesn't work on the market, right? And so I think uh, I think that's the sad power that a lot of data science managers have these days. I can completely relate. <laughs> 
if there's anything I know is mistakes that I've made and the lessons learned, and I know what doesn't work. <laughs> That's fantastic. So in your in your career, you've had a big focus on creating products on the data-driven products. What's the influence that that has on building a team? How does your team look different to what it might look in other companies that are not doing data-driven products? No, I mean, it's always the same thing, right? I mean, it's uh, basically like number one, maybe focusing first on what the customer actually wants, not necessarily what looks cool from a research perspective, even though, as I said before, it's really important to keep some portion for like the creativity or trying something new, trying something crazy and for maybe more on the strategic side of things rather than the tactical side of things. One thing, you know, like uh, you tend to have a lot of people in this domain that come from the same background that, you know, like uh, applied science, people who publish things and papers and so forth and so on. And so sometimes it's like, it's really tempting, I'm going to say, right? Because I'm also coming from the same background where basically like, oh, this is like the shiny new model that everybody's talking about. I really want to try this. But you have to remain pragmatic and say that this is not the right thing to do for your company, right? I would say like it's a little bit challenging at times where it's almost like the uncle manager kind of a kind of dilemma right i mean that you know that everybody really wants to work on gans right now but you really know that it doesn't really make sense <laughs> so yeah. or it's not necessarily the one thing that's going to make you money in the short term so i mean it's, it's really important that it changes the decisions in terms of what you prioritize for sure right and so i would say like it's always very difficult to be somewhere between like uh the cool things where you could actually have something but you cannot afford to spend 100 of your time on this and the other side of the spectrum where you have like maybe a little bit too pragmatic people working around you or business people that just see like uh let's do the same thing that what our competitors are doing right now right that's right so interesting there's so many things that i want to ask you um I'm going to tell you something first. I think like a really big problem is like, again, like I talked about credibility before, right? But like, I think it's so important that you don't dig yourself into a hole as a machine learning team or a data science team that all you think about is the cool shiny publication or new kind of model and so forth and so on. And so it's really important to come across all the time. Like I'm thinking about the money we're going to make out of this, the product that's going to come out of this. Right. And so as soon as and, and I think this is the way that so many different data science people and data science managers fail that eventually they come across as being like a, the research person, not necessarily the business person. So true. In your case, how did you develop that commercial focus and business acumen? I made that mistake over and over again, right? I mean, so basically, like, I'm just like, ooh, that's really, really cool thing to build or whatever. And so uh, it's even worse than that. It's like, uh, even though you know in your heart of hearts that I'm doing this eventually to build a new technology that's going to take my company to the next level, if people don't believe you or they believe that all you think about is publishing papers again, I'm going to use that example, but I think this is like so true. Like, it's really like representation of like what research is for the outside world, right? That if if you, if they believe for one instant that you are that person, you lost the battle. It's really important that you always like, uh, I, I will always say like, I avoid talking research too much in front of people who are not on my team, because I think it's eventually going to lose your credibility for the rest of the company. I think that is excellent advice. Yeah, I actually do the same thing. I see more business outside of my team and more technical within my team. You're spot on. I could not agree more. Now, I think the big challenge is also like when you're starting to uncover something new, right? I have a new technology that I think I should, like not only I could test, I should test. And the biggest challenge here is like, uh, how do I convince the outside of my team, like people who are not on my team, that this is mature enough. There is a market. You need to let me try. It's not necessarily what you had in mind in the first place, right? I mean, so it's where... Machine learning MVPs and like bottom up initiatives are key, but you're also competing with people who have a different agenda, right? I mean, or like when I say agendas, like I had another idea of what the product should look like. And so, uh, this is where like uh, your negotiation skills come at play. Completely. And before you want to put that solution forward to others, how do you decide when it's the right time, when something is mature enough to even try it in a commercial setting? 
I'm going to say that I don't have a good answer for that, right? I mean, it's really like a, you have to take some risks at some point, right? I mean, so I, I'm going to say like, how do you know? I just don't know, right? I mean, I just know that there is a chance of this being successful. It's all about like, a, how willing are you to take risks and how willing is the company willing to take risks with you and for you? Yes, no, that's that's true. And going back to the people having different agendas and the negotiation, how do you navigate the organizational politics? So you can have maximum impact from your team. I'm going to go back to like, it's really important people to understand, like, again, like it's, it's really a balance between like explaining people you're doing in not such geeky terms that you come across as being the research person, right? More like I'm educating you so that you have sufficiently enough information to decide what's right for the company, right? For me, it's so, so critical for a machine learning driven company that everybody understands what you're trying to do. It's all about education, explaining, being patient and explaining it in the terms that make it really clear that you know what you're doing at the same time make it very clear that it's not some kind of a distant dream that you're just thinking about like a technology that's going to exist like five ten years in the future definitely that's so good and tell me what on your mind these days what challenges are you navigating or, or trying to solve I'm going to say my biggest challenge is like one of the things we're trying to sell right now as a company is something that's requiring like a complete change of mindset from the data science community in general. You know, we're talking about like, a, you know, like organizational challenges and so forth and so on. I would say like this is a very small portion of my problems right now. So I, I think like uh, what Figurate is really trying to do is like selling the ability of creating the right training set for your model. And when you think about like the way we're trained as data scientists, right? I almost sound like, a, you know, like a, we're all like 50 years old or whatever. And so it's not even true because like the technology is moving so quickly that even people who only have like I've been in the industry like for five, 10 years tend to do that mistake, right? I mean, so it's a, we've been used to start gathering data before we know what we're going to do with it. That predates the time where we had too much data, right? I remember like early in my career or like gather data, whatever you have, right? I'm not necessarily yes. thinking about the right feature and so forth and so on. And so what are you going to do with it? I don't know. I just know I'm going to need data and a lot of data. And so I need to start gathering historical data now. This is a mindset where it eventually gets you to think about the data first, and then you're going to tailor your model to that data. And so if the data is yes. not good, you did not collect the right thing, you're still going to try to force the model to fit onto that data. And so I think like now we've reached the opportunity where we don't need to do that anymore. What we need to do is like now we need to think about like developing the right training set for the model and the right model for the training set. So it's like a symbiosis kind of way of like developing things together. We have a very high focus on something called active learning. So like the ability of developing or finding the right like uh, rows in your data because uh, traditionally figure eight is originally a company called Crowdflower. Crowdflower used to be in the business of like labeling data so that you could trade whatever AI application you had in mind. And so with big data, manually labeling everything is just not practical anymore. So you have two ways to go by this. Either you're going to label automatically using a machine learning model. If you want to reach a really high accuracy, which you have to if you're like an autonomous vehicle company, right? you have to use a human in the loop approach, which still requires human labor, right? This is like about like labeling faster. You can also label smarter. Label smarter, again, is all about like building a model at the same time or concurrently with your training set. And this is a mindset that virtually no one has in the industry right now. It's almost like data science PTSD. I need to collect data. I need to collect data. I need to collect data. And I don't really know what to do, like what I'm going to do with it. I just need to know that there is some data somewhere being collected in case I need it. You don't really have to think about this anymore because we have big data. And so I don't know why we're still all thinking about like starting to collect data early in the process. It's the wrong way of thinking about the problem when you have too much data to work with. Correct. It is PTSD. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping and I'm really excited that we got to active learning and these challenges that you have now. So first, can you describe uh, active learning for the people that don't know what it is? Typically, like a supervised learning method is like pretty much what 90% of the applications, machine learning applications you use today. So you, in order to train your application, you label your entire data set and then you go through your traditional like a model development phase, which is like a training, validating, testing to move forward, right? I mean, either like hopefully it works and you push that into a, an application or product. With active learning, you're actually, it's a supervised, semi-supervised approach where while you're 
training your model, you start identifying what extra data it requires or what extra label it requires, right? I mean, so instead of like throwing like a million data points to your model, you actually start thinking about like, I'm going to start small. I'm going to label some data and then I'm going to start building a model. And based on the feedback I'm going to get from this model or the accuracy I'm going to get for this model, the confidence level for the different rows, right? And so eventually the trick is like a label some data and then you use the rest of your data for inference. And then you can learn tons of things about like, where is the most valuable part of my data? And you can make decisions, smart decisions in terms of what extra rows to label. So this is where like smartly building your training set rather than throwing all the data you have to your model comes at play. What's really unique about active learning compared to other uh, semi-supervised learning methodologies, semi-supervised learning like has been thrown open. Why? Because it's really prone to inducing biases. People have been extremely careful, and so it actually makes sense. With active learning, it's actually like a semi-supervised methodology where you're actually never using a synthetic label. When I say synthetic labels can still be generated by a separate machine learning methodology, but you're asking for a row to be labeled. You're using the active learning approach essentially to decide what you're going to label next. So if you want to be on the safe side, you don't trust a machine learning model, you can still ask for a human to label that row as safe as you're going to get if you're going to use a semi-supervised methodology. Correct. It's quite efficient. And how is that done? What is the process to you or how do you use the models for active learning? That's where it becomes our secret sauce. So I'm not, I'm not going to tell Perfect. you too much, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm to tell you the following though, right? I mean, so it's, it's really yep. about, uh, it's not even a model. I think like lots of people are confused about like active learning is a type of model. It's not a type of model. It's a wrapper around a model. So you can use active learning in conjunction with deep learning, with whatever method you want to use. Uh, and so eventually like, and this is a brand new kind of field, I, I'm going to say, right? I mean, so people view active learning as being uh, a machine learning model, but it's actually something you can build on top of whatever you're creating today so that you don't need to label everything. There are different methodologies you can use to identify. And so this is what you're going to call like a querying strategy. How do you identify the next best row for you to throw into your model or your next batch of rows to throw into your model? And so one of the problems you have on the market right now is like uh, very few people are using that in the industry right now. And so companies using this are really doing this because they just can't afford to label everything. You have research going on in academic circles, but it's essentially related to like, a, hey, I tried this active learning approach and it worked or it didn't work. And there is no real strong framework to identify what is the best approach for you. It's very much a trial and error process right now for whoever is using active learning. And so we are taking a completely different approach where we're abstracting the problem in a way that's going to help you identify the best querying strategy. And so that's our new secret sauce. That's fantastic. And that is so much more efficient than current methods. And I know that I've had problems in the past where I've had to label lots and lots of data or I've had to use Mechanical Turk to get people to annotate or pick information from text. So then I could build a machine learning model that could replicate that and et cetera. But it was sort of using a jackhammer every time. No, and I think one of the issues we're going to have today is that when you have too much data, you have tendency to be like basically do random sampling, right? So some kind of like maybe smart, like stratified sampling, whatever that is, even though like stratified sampling is really hard if you don't have the classes. So if you don't have the labels, right? So eventually the key here is like, what if you have a really rare type of data in your data set somewhere that you cannot afford to miss. I'm going to use the example of like autonomous driving again, but uh, assume like this is the one image that's like the one thing that's going to stop you from having an accident. Something that's really critical that if you miss it, you're missing like really critical information. And that can be the difference between the life and death of a person using your car. You should be able to use the large volumes of data you have like fully without having to randomly sample it. So you still want to benefit of your huge volume of data. You just cannot afford to use all of it to be labeled, right? So you need to identify which ones are the most informational, if it makes sense. So it's almost like coming back to an entropy problem. But the problem with entropy is like it's model agnostic. 
a data row or an image that's really highly informational in the context of a specific model might not be for another task you're trying to achieve. This is where active learning is really, really important. That is so great. So interesting as well. And the companies that you work with, uh, so your, your clients, who do you work with in the client side? Is it with the data science teams directly or do you do the work for That's- the business? That's a very good question. So, I mean, we, we really have like a, and so this is where it comes back to like a, how do you do business the right way? So we're really selling to different types of personas. So eventually whoever's going to use the label rows is a data scientist. You're not always directly talking to the data scientist, but you're catering to the data scientist, right? I mean, so it depends on the companies, but so we sometimes provide, um, the data, sometimes the methodology. We also have like a, what we call like custom models or custom license are where for some companies that are not very mature from a machine learning standpoint, we actually provide the entire model on top of the querying strategy or the data and so forth and so on. It really varies from company to company. What I can say is like we have a very wide range of different use cases of different companies. Obviously, I'm not allowed to say too much, but we have like really prestigious companies we're working with. That's really great because essentially what it sounds like is you come and and help where it's needed. So depending on the capability that the company has, they might need something on top of that. That's the the gap that you fill and it can be at different stages of the the maturity curve, I guess. It's 100% fair. And it's also my biggest challenge because we're building very different things depending on the level of maturity of our customers. For me as a data science manager or machine learning manager, it's really hard to identify what, what should I prioritize? What kind of company should we go after? And so again, this decision that needs to be made at the leadership level, but at the same time, they don't know what they don't know. So it's also like a, for me to provide the right guidance here. And so sometimes it's not really even clear to myself, like, should we go for the less mature customer that actually needs a full model or is it smarter for us to go after like the companies that have a model but they don't have the right methodology to identify what words they should label correct because that comes with a big education piece for the market really to say this is what active learning is this is exactly This is why I told you that basically like my biggest problem right now is to change the mindset of the entire industry so it's a tall order It is. I completely understand. I get it. I get the challenge now. Yeah, I think it's something that is very much needed in the market to have these semi-supervised way of, of working with the models and feeding it the information that it actually needs. It's definitely going to become more, more and more important. So that's really great. Thank you for doing that work. So I'd like to um, take a step back and I'll ask you a few questions, I guess more high level questions for the industry and we'll get into some discussions that can get some advice for the listeners. So the first one is, what makes a great data scientist, do you think? It's almost like most of what makes a great data scientist is what makes a great technologist, right? And so the ability of like adapting really fast, you know, I'm going to say like everything, it's really important to have like a willingness to move forward with uncertainty. I would almost say like a, for me, the best data scientists are no are like, I always use that phrase, but like, that's really what I believe, like comfortable with the uncomfortable. So it's like, uh, you have to make the gray zone your comfort zone. And it's, I don't think it's specifically really like, uh, it's data science. Yes, definitely. Because like, we're really working on like a uh, cutting edge technologies, but like, it's something that's very general of technology. I also believe obviously that great data scientists have a good math sense. And I also believe that you need to have a good business sense. So it's like, uh, that's great. And those are some of the things that are very strong in you as a professional in what you were telling us about about your story the you know being comfortable with the uncomfortable being able to change directions and learn because that's how you would get through the huge challenges as we were talking about before you know like you go into something that may be quite challenging for you and then obviously and i've had similar situations where i've made heaps of mistakes and that's okay as long as you learn and adapt and change uh, quickly so that's really great i really like that answer thank you and what do you think makes a great data science leader? All of the above. And, you know, like, again, I'm going to say, like, it's like what I said before, right? I mean, really this right balance between business sense and technology. I think, like, where I see people failing as data science managers, like, if you come from a technical path and you lose that technical sense, right? And this, like, proximity to the problem, because I think it's probably, like, even a more general comment about managers in general, like, the ability of, like, understanding, supporting your team, helping with the right decisions. I'm even 
gonna say that if you lose that, you almost allow your team to fool you into like, hey, this is really something we should try. And then you're like, oh no, I know it's not, (laughs) it's not really what we should be doing right now. And so uh, really like uh, all the people I think fail because they're just like, they don't have that business sense. So I think, you know, like uh, I come from a technical path, but I don't necessarily think that all great data science managers actually come from that path. I think you also have going to have like really successful people in data science that are somewhat technical. They understand how they can take inputs from others, but they're also like really business oriented. And so I think it's a, it takes like a very special person to have both at the same time. I, you know, like sometimes I feel like I'm more like one or the other, but it's really like about like making sure that you keep both and you nurture both and you don't let yourself be pulled too much in one way or another. I love that answer. Yes, it's definitely a, a balance. And just the two sides that, that you mentioned, I've seen people that are technical and they want to rise through the ranks and they think that they need to stop being technical to do so. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I've seen the flip side of business people that are non-technical and they want to start working with data, but then they say, I don't want to learn any of the technical stuff, but I want to be amongst it. And what you said there is that for both of them, you can do it, but you have to work on the other side as well. Since we talk about imposter syndrome earlier, like something I think is like a, I really struggle and I'm even going to say I still struggle with that, but I almost like specifically for women in that, that kind of position in technology in general. I think what, what's really important, like I spent most of my careers, like I've been successful by being one step ahead of everybody else, right? And so there is a new technology, learn this technology before the others, et cetera, et cetera. And then I felt like huge, like a imposter syndrome and like a, almost guilt by saying like, and what if people realize I'm just one step ahead? I'm not like the big shot everybody believes, right? I mean, I'm just like, a, I don't know that much more than you do. And now like, you know, I'm in front of you at the conference talking to you about this. And so I feel like a, I'm a huge fraud for doing this. And then at some point I realized like, I kept asking this, like, what if people realize I'm just one step ahead? And then I realized if I'm one step ahead, everybody wants is one step behind. And so I'm not an imposter. And so I almost say, you know, like, a, <laughs> no, so I think literally like one step ahead is all that's needed and I can completely relate I completely relate and I've definitely I have imposter syndrome where it's like oh am I do I know enough to do this and you know there's there's so many other amazing people and I completely agree I think that it's being one step ahead and maintaining that balance that, that you were mentioning yes yeah. of having the business on the technical side if you really want to stay one step ahead, I think this is where you, you realize how critical it is to keep learning, keep reading, keep being aware of a new technology, not being complacent and not like a, because otherwise you're not going to be, you're not going to be one step ahead all the time, right? I mean, you have to, uh, you have to keep being one step ahead of everybody else. So I think, I think that's really the key of success for, for data scientists and for data science managers. Definitely. Definitely. That's so great. And obviously we should address this, um, the you mentioned there that it maybe it might be more difficult for women or the women might be more sensitive but I, I want to ask you how do you see the diversity gender diversity in our industry and and what what do you think can be done about it so I am super proud that virtually every single team I've managed, I've had like perfect gender balance on my team. Like right now, it's just like exactly 50-50. I am super proud of this. This is super important. I'm going to say the following. So I'm a very active and like uh, lots of like uh, initiatives for like uh, women in data science and so forth and so on. I think it's critical to bring that uh, awareness. At the same time, I feel that I don't want to go the other way around, right? I'm just like by doing too much like uh, promoting women in data science. It's also like, uh, I really feel great the days where gender just doesn't matter, right? And so uh, as much as I think it's important to speak like a data science uh, conferences, specifically for like uh, attracting female talent to the industry and so forth and so on, I also feel that it's really critical for women not to come across as like, uh, I'm going to say like uh, alienating themselves from uh, the other minorities or like uh, either the other minorities or from the, like uh, the male data scientists as well. 
Yes, correct. Correct. 100% agree. And I'll tell you that I made two big mistakes that I'm actually quite, quite ashamed about. And I'll, I'll confess them to you. <laughs> but I made two big mistakes when hiring and building teams where I had the best intentions in terms of maintaining ideally a 50-50 mm-hmm. gender split. And right. without realizing, I made these mistakes. So the first one was we had 10 job positions, we advertised widely, and we had about 250 applicants and it was about 42% women Mm -hmm. and I sent them a self-assessment questionnaire for them to tell us more about themselves and the and we had half of the people answered that in that half our ratio of women went down to about 12% and then we went through all the interview stages and at the end that ratio was reflected so we hired one woman out of uh, 10 people and I went back to because I did a lot of presentations to try and promote the the job ad and before we went for the next round I went back to the universities and the meetup groups and I essentially said these were our numbers what essentially what happened and there was a girl uh, a woman who who approached me who she ended up joining the team later on and she said you know what the text in your self-assessment questionnaire was biased and I never thought about that before, yeah. right? And for example, one of the things that I said is when that I put in the self-assessment questionnaire, when somebody wanted to say that they were doing that they were great at a programming language or finance or whatever we were asking about, the top thing was to say, I'm a gun at Python. I'm a gun at R. <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's terrible. I did it with the best intention, but then <laughs> She told me, she's like, that's not I, I would definitely not to talk to talk about me in that term, those terms. <laughs> I'm actually really embarrassed. And, and it was with the best intentions. And she actually pointed me to um, a startup that does text analysis to say whether your job ads are gender mm-hmm. biased, uh, which that was <laughs> really helpful. And then for the next round of hires, we had a 50-50 split, which was excellent. Oh, awesome. This is just really embarrassing for me. So the other one is that I think that at least in the companies that I've worked in, they were aiming to be forward thinking and they, they had ratios on gender hires, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's, that's a good step forward. And I initially was all for it. And this is where I, I want your opinion. Mm-hmm. But my current thinking is not so much to focus on the ratio, but yeah. to build a team culture where everyone wants to work in. Right. Something like a team culture that's really attractive and inclusive and great for everyone that everyone wants to join and you will attract the right talent. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about that? So let, let me even like a comment like Anna and going back to like things I should be ashamed of as well. Because <laughs> no, so I, I would I would even so number one, I just wanted to comment on what you said like about uh, job ads, uh, uh, job ads being uh, biased, right? I mean, so I think like there was a study that typically the requirements you put in a job ad, right? I mean, men would typically I think apply if they have like. I'm not, I'm going to say just a number, but like 30 or 40% of the requirements while women want to have 80, 90%, right? I mean, so you always have that problem anyways, that women are much more like, Hey, I'm, I don't have this. I'm not going to be hired anyways, right? That's definitely a problem. The other thing that I think, uh, I actually realized like fairly late in my career is that I was so scared of like hiring a woman. And then somebody would tell me I was biased in favor of women that I actually had like a much stricter kind of like set of requirements for women. And actually they realized really, really late that I was biased against women because I was so like, if I hire a woman, she better be really, really, really good because otherwise people are going to say I hired her because she was a woman. And so I eventually at some point, I'm like, this has to stop. And I stopped looking at the names whatsoever in the like I forced myself not to look at any kind of like uh, names on the on the resumes or uh, so forth and so on and by doing that I actually achieved parity and so I was just like hey this is the way it should work I love it. That is great. And it's so fantastic that obviously you work on your self-awareness to identify where you had these biases and then work to change them. That is outstanding. That's one of the things that makes a great leader, I think. Yeah. So the other thing you were asking, uh, how do you ensure you have the right culture, right? I mean, creating an environment where it's exciting for everybody to work. One of the mistakes we are doing as an industry to attract more women is like, generally the solution people have is like, a, hey, we're going to attract more young women to STEM. 
don't you see a problem with that? Because like, if you do that, you're actually going to attract people who are like young ICs with not a lot of influence and so forth and so on. And so I think like for me, the solution is like to bring more women into high visibility, powerful positions. I'm not necessarily going to say CEOs or whatever, but like it's really important that you bring people and women into like a decision making position so that number one, they can function as influencers and uh, role models. Because I think like, I've never had this role model. It's really complicated for a woman to have a role yeah. model. It doesn't matter like, uh, yes, there are women now, but like not at the generation above me, right? And so number two is just like, uh, if you want to make a long lasting impact, you need to have people who think like women make decisions for the entire company and the entire department. So it's not like by bringing more women at the IC level, especially at the junior IC level, they're going to make a difference. So true. Alone needs to be done across the whole ladder. That is so great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm going to be respectful of your time. So I just want to keep an eye, an eye on, the, on the clock. But this has been so much fun. So I want to ask you, what do you think are the, the future challenges in data science and in our space? I think a lot of the challenges are going to come from ethics as well. So we don't have the right regulation. It, it, it is sometimes scary that the, it's exactly the same problem that you have within organizations specifically, right? I mean, the people in power positions are not informed or not aware sufficiently of what the impact would be, what the come on, like ethics for AI are going to be very different from ethics in general, right? I mean, so I think like uh, this is probably going to be our single biggest challenge. The other challenges I think that we're already facing, like in terms of new technologies, I actually believe like something people are not necessarily thinking of is like also storage. So I think there is actually like a Moore's law is actually telling you that uh, storage is expanding, data is expanding. Great. We're excited about this. If you actually check the statistics, the amount of data we are generating is growing faster than the amount of storage available. So that's going to be an interesting one as well. I didn't know that. That is definitely going to be a tricky one to navigate. No, and I think um, I think once we get there, the key here is going to be like you need to identify what roles are the most beneficial in your training set, and so okay. yeah, I mean this is this is kind of interesting for us, right? <laughs> exactly ahead of the curve. That's really great. So I only have one last question for you, and is I take away what is a takeaway that you would like to leave the the listeners with? Uh, something for them to think about for their careers. Don't join data science just because you like the bath, because if that's the only, the only thing that uh, matters to you, this is not the right profession and you're not going to be successful. And I think it's going to become truer and truer in the future where there is a huge requirement from a data scientist having a business sense as well. Don't join for the research side of things because data, data scientist, if I still want to call that data scientist, is not what you think it is. It's not just publishing papers. That is so true. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much. This has been Amazing. Oh, my so absolute pleasure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so did so, I. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your insights. And we will be in touch soon. Yeah, absolutely. You're more than welcome. <laughs> Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X dot com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.